price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Bowery Boys Walks. Greg, it's our own walking tour company that's bringing us this episode. (laughs) Yes, it is. And even though it's fall heading into winter, the tours are actually just heating up. Oh, yes. Right now in November and December, we have special holiday tours like the Christmas in Old New York, along with old favorites like Edith Wharton's New York and Murder and Mayhem in 19th Century NoHo and the Hidden Histories of Greenwich Village. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com and join us in the streets. And if you're looking for something else to do this holiday season, come out and join us at the Green Space on Monday, December 9th for a live recording of the Bowery Boys podcast. That's green with an extra E at the end. The sidewalk level recording space at WNYC on Varick Street. We are super excited and even feel kind of honored to be able to, to record a live show. We'd love for you to join us. Tickets are available at thegreenspace.org. The Bowery Boys episode 303, Building Stuyvesant Town, a mid-century controversy. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And for today's show, we're headed to Manhattan's east side, to Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village, which is this massive and, and iconic housing development just north of the East Village. Now, when, when we say massive, we're not kidding. Stuytown and Peter Cooper Village together cover 80 acres, okay, and consists of more than 100 apartment buildings, red brick 12 and 13 story apartment buildings uh, that contain more than 11,000 rental apartments and are home to about 25,000 New Yorkers. There's almost nothing like it in Manhattan, although you'll find similar communities, say, Co-op City in the Bronx. And these developments basically constitute their own neighborhood. They are even politically powerful, stretching from 14th Street to 23rd Street and from 1st Avenue east to Avenue C, or essentially the East River. Now, this development went up during the 1940s in an effort to provide affordable housing to middle-class New Yorkers. And it would do it, I think you could say, succeeded for several generations. But let's address this right up front, Craig. I can almost hear the listeners saying, wait a second, you guys are going to spend the next hour talking about a housing development? How in the world is that interesting? Well, there are a number of surprising 
disappointing and even scandalous twists to the story of Stuyvesant Town because you can't tell the story without talking about housing discrimination in New York City. Who was Stuyvesant Town open to when it opened its doors in the 1940s? It was open to white people. And to whom was it closed? People of color. And what makes the story even more complicated is that Stuyvesant Town was planned, managed, and paid for through a very unique private-public partnership between the city of New York and the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, otherwise referred to as MetLife. So essentially, a housing development that was created with public assistance in many ways, and we'll get to that, was actively discriminating against residents who were paying taxes to that city. So how did this enormous project even come to be? How was it able to even be constructed in the 1940s? And how would it change over the years? Now, many of you may live there today, actually. Certainly, it's still a beloved neighborhood and community. And yet the controversies of these opening years have been largely forgotten. But they're important to discuss, and that's why... Today, we'll be focusing on those early years, the years of planning, construction, and opening, and then integration of Stuyvesant Town. So join us as we re-examine the complicated origins of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. Tom, let's get started here with our traditional situate the listener, Mm -hmm. um, which this seems to be pretty easy to do because it does lay out on the New York City grid plan. Yes, we are talking about two different middle class housing developments, and they are just adjacent to each other. The larger is Stuyvesant Town, which falls between 14th Street and 20th Streets and between 1st Avenue all the way east to Avenue C. Now, just north of Stuyvesant Town is Peter Cooper Village, which falls between 20th and 23rd Street, and also between 1st and C. Peter Cooper Village is quite a bit smaller than Stuytown. And if you haven't seen these places, if you don't you know, live here and you don't know, and you aren't that familiar with Stuytown, just quickly look it up on the map so you can see the size and scale of what we're talking about here. Because together, these cover about 80 acres of land and include about 110 buildings, which contain more than 11,000 apartments. It's enormous. Even if you don't live in New York, however, I think you would be able to visualize this because they are in this tower-in-the-park format. How specifically do these look on this campus right. of sorts? Because they are kind of like college campuses, yeah. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. These campuses consist mostly of 12 and 13 story red brick apartment towers. They're, they're arranged, each of them, around parks or kind of grassy lawns and playgrounds. Stuyvesant Town is arranged around something called the Oval, which is a large grassy yard with a fountain. But one of the first things that you will notice when you visit today is that the Manhattan Street Grid stops right at the gates of Stuytown and Peter Cooper Village. Both of these places have their own winding roads and sidewalks, and they don't adhere to the grid. 
which will come into the story. You'll also notice that there, there's not a lot of free enterprise going on inside the walls here. And there aren't schools, or there's no library. These developments quite literally consist of red brick apartment buildings and playgrounds and lawns, full stop. It's almost like you're stepping into a snow globe or there's some kind of a force field around it <laughs> that physically and I would say like psychologically separates it from the rest of the city. Hmm, foreshadowing. And the names of these developments harken back to actual historic figures. Uh, two men named Peter, actually. Two, yes, Peter Stuyvesant and Peter Cooper, who both, by the way, lived pretty near today's development. I mean, the development wasn't there when they lived there. <laughs> right. Yeah, Clear. Cooper was over on Gramercy Park, just immediately west of, of where Peter Cooper Village is. That's right. Just north of it at 9 Lexington Avenue at 22nd Street. And Peter Cooper was a great inventor, entrepreneur. He opened Cooper Union, mm -hmm. among other many other things that he did. And as for Peter Stuyvesant, the last director general of New Amsterdam, he and later his family owned much of this land as their family farm. Remember, after the British took over in 1664, Stuyvesant and his family would stick around um, and purchase this huge swath of land as the family's brewery, or bowery, which stretched from about today's 6th Street up to 23rd, and from 4th Avenue over all the way to the river. So basically, Peter Stuyvesant's family would own the East Village. And this was the northern end of that property. Yeah, his family house was around today's First Avenue and 16th Street. Well, you've embedded us in the the old New York history here mm -hmm. of this area, but what's it like by the Great Depression, by the 1930s? Well, this had turned into kind of a tough neighborhood called the Gas House District. Gas House, because the neighborhood was, was home to a large number of gas storage tanks that served New York. And we're talking huge gas tanks. Yeah, this is a silhouette you don't really see in the middle of the city anymore. The massive, massive metal tanks. Like, you know, the water towers on top of most apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. If you would take one of those in Photoshop and just drag it out, you know, drag the scale to a <laughs> yes, way uh -huh. out. Like, like, it's so big. When you see photos of what this place looked like in the early 20th century, you can't believe what you're looking at. You know, these huge tanks... They were supplying gas to the gas-powered lights for city streets. It wasn't just here. There were also smaller gas house districts in other parts of town. One up at East 62nd in York, another over on the west side at 125th Street. But this one was enormous. And, you know, these gas tanks didn't really do a lot for the real estate value of the no, area. I imagine that it both smelled mm -hmm. and that the housing stock around such places was not exactly uh, livable. Squalid, mm -hmm. you could even say, leading to a rise in crime, into street gangs, including one called the Gas House Gang. The New York Sun wrote about the, the unique character of the sunset casting light on the district in March of 1914. They wrote... Have you ever seen this phenomenon of the east side? It's a weird spectacle. The garnet-colored glow stains the entire gas house district with its ruddy light and momentarily brightens the great gas tanks, long dismal rows of them, which give the district its name, gloomy metal towers floating on their unseen waterbed, 
sinking into vague distances. Just in case anyone thinks that gaslight is a romantic way to see the world, (laughs) here's the reality. You got to put it in a tank. Yes. And these tanks were still here by the 1930s. Yes, although in the 30s, when the FDR drive was built, many of those tanks were wiped out. And by the 30s, this part of town had actually become, you know, home to working class New Yorkers, lower income New Yorkers. But there was a a wide ranging community here uh, that consisted of apartment buildings, along with stores. There were three different schools, one public and two parochial churches. It was a neighborhood uh, of about 600 buildings and about 11,000 people. But many of those places, most maybe, would have probably been deemed by a member of Mayor LaGuardia's administration as, quote, slums. Because since 1934, he was the city's parks commissioner and then the head of the Triborough Bridge Authority. And by 1942, he would become the head of the city planning commission. That could only be Robert Moses. That's right. Who by the early 1940s, along with his many other powers, Mm -hmm. was heavily involved in housing projects in New York and specifically the idea of slum clearance and urban renewal. Right. And also middle class retention. Now... Before we can get into Moses in the early 40s, we have to address something else really huge that happened in 1934, and that was the creation of the New York City Housing Authority, or NYCHA. The fact is, the city had a lot of outdated 19th century housing, right? Lots of old tenements, conditions were bad. Not enough light, not enough fresh air, no hot water, that sort of thing. And things would only get worse during the Depression when landlords couldn't afford to make improvements in those buildings and tenants would move in with friends and families because they didn't have enough money. So people were doubling up in apartments that were actually becoming increasingly run down. So we're talking about terrible living conditions and that shouldn't be overlooked in this whole story. People like Moses and other reformers would also see those places as breeding grounds for crime. And they would use that as an excuse for slum clearance. And this is a much larger issue that merits a much larger show in the future, the idea of housing. But how specifically would NYCHA work in terms of developing new housing projects? Well, they could use eminent domain to acquire properties and then condemn it and construct housing. And the first NYCHA housing project was called The First Houses. Uh, It was completed in today's East Village on East 3rd Street between 1st and A. uh, And that was completed in 1935. And then over the next couple of years, they'd construct the Harlem River Houses and then the Williamsburg Houses. And then really under the leadership of LaGuardia, construct many, many more public houses that were meant to vastly improve the living conditions of low-income New Yorkers. So if this housing authority is already involved in the construction of low-income housing by the 1930s, mm-hmm. how and why and where, where does Robert Moses then get involved into this picture? Well, first of all, he hated what he considered to be, quote, slums. You know, he thought that they were the antithesis of the modern city. He thought that they could hold New York's growth back, its survival back. That these blighted neighborhoods, quote unquote, actually drove middle class New Yorkers away and all of their stability and tax revenues and that sort of thing. So he hated, quote unquote, slums. 
Now, the other key event that was happening here is World War II. By the early 1940s, once the U.S. had entered the war, it, it became really quickly apparent that there would be a housing shortage when soldiers returned from the war. That had happened after the first war. So imagine, you know, there were brides and families and children that were living with relatives and families while husbands mostly were off serving in the war. Well, when they came back, most of those people would want to head off and find their own place. So it was in the city's best interest to construct housing for those returning veterans so that they wouldn't just run off to the suburbs, which already by the early 40s were competing with the city. And so then by 1942, he was actually the head of the city planning commission, Mm -hmm. which now included things like housing. And which would give him broader access to things like slum clearance. And we should add that Almost all of these housing developments are in one specific style called the Towers in the Park, which is the idea of a large uninterrupted stretch of land, so no regular street traffic to cars. A super block. A super block with lots of similar buildings, identical buildings, and almost nothing left that had been developed prior. So an entirely new development of uniform buildings, most of them brick and most of them brown or red. So with Moses involved here, you can only imagine what he thought of that old gas house district. It's probably something he wanted to wipe off the map. Well, yeah, he he looked over thinking, well, you could clear this away and that would provide, you know, because the location's excellent, that would provide an ideal location for middle class housing uh, for veterans who were returning from the war. He imagined a community of teachers and managers and civil servants and policemen and firemen. They could live in comfort in modern apartment towers and easily get to their jobs in Manhattan. They could, many of them might even be able to walk. So setting aside the ethical issues of just wiping away this entire neighborhood Mm -hmm. wholesale, this sounds like it would be a project that would cost a lot of money. Yeah, he knew quite a bit about budgeting from his other work. So he knew, right, that collecting all of those parcels of property demolishing them, relocating tenants, and then building these superstructures would be extremely expensive to the city. So he actually pursued private institutions, specifically banks and insurance companies, to help finance this whole thing. But wasn't even legal for the city to get in bed with private corporations like this? Well, he'd make it legal. And he worked actually with city and state officials to create a new law that was called the Redevelopment Companies Law of 1942. That would actually create this kind of public-private partnership for the purposes of constructing housing. Because, Greg, look, in this situation, if the city and some insurance or bank would work together, everybody would win. (laughs) So the city of Mm -hmm. New York could use eminent domain to acquire all the land. That's right. And then these private banks or insurance companies, the ones who would actually pay to develop these huge projects and then run them, they would get massive tax breaks and perks. And then another piece of this puzzle is, of course, that taxpayers' money. What's in it for them? What's in it for the regular New Yorker? Well, as long as the the property was getting these tax perks, they were also forced to keep rents at an affordable level. So there was rent control as long as those tax perks were there. And as for those people who already lived there 
in the gas house district. Uh, I assume this was the end of the line. Right. Well, according to Moses, they would all be taken care of and they'd actually be moved into better housing, you mm-hmm. know, because there was New York City Housing Authority, you know, new projects going up all over town by this point. And he promised to get people who were low income into those housing. There would be a system in place to take care of those people. But essentially, yes, the city was proposing a partnership that would wipe away a low income neighborhood and replace it with a middle class neighborhood. Out of thin air, essentially, yeah. or g- gassy air. So does, so does Moses go around shopping for a, a private partner here to get involved in these projects? Yeah, to various insurance companies. The thing about those insurance companies and banks, they're just so conservative. You know, they <laughs> yeah. really were risk averse and looked at something like this huge redevelopment of a massive neighborhood. They looked at it as a pretty risky investment. Mm-hmm. And they had lots of money to invest. But most said, no, Bob. New York Life Insurance said no. Others said no. He, however, found more openness in Frederick Ecker, who was the chairman of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, MetLife. And Ecker had been there his entire career. He was now in his 70s. This was a company that was formed in New York in the 1860s and had grown by the 1940s into the world's largest life insurance company. Isn't this the company in the 80s and 90s that used Charlie Brown and Snoopy as part of their logos? Don't they still use Snoopy? I think so. Oh, wait, no, they stopped in 2016. Anyway, keep that in mind as we proceed with the story. (laughs) Good grief. (laughs) What exactly is the appeal for a life insurance company to get into this volatile world of real estate. Well, they would be looking to diversify their portfolios. You know, Ecker had actually been investing MetLife's money in real estate for many years by this point. Rather fabulously, in the 1920s, they were heavily invested in the construction of the Empire State Building, and then in 1931, in Rockefeller Center. So they weren't afraid to put money into mortgages and financial backing for for buildings. But housing necessarily? Well, they had even gotten into housing in the 1920s. They developed more than 50 apartment buildings out in Long Island City. But their biggest project to date by the late 1930s was a massive middle-class residential development up in the Bronx called Parkchester, which we talked about in our, in our three-part Bronx mm-hmm. miniseries. And this was MetLife's first major foray into middle-class housing. Well, major in that it would provide housing for like 30,000 people on a massive scale, kind of like Stuyvesant Town, but also a little bit different in that Parkchester wasn't developed on like an existing grid plan. You know, they Mm -hmm. they built Parkchester on farmland up in the Bronx. Down here in the heavily populated gas house district, things were different. And although MetLife was attracted to the offer, Moses would have to do some wheeling and dealing to really win them over. So in 1943, working with uh, the state legislature, Moses helped pass new legislation that specifically benefited MetLife themselves. It provided a 25-year tax abatement, along with a huge swath of land obtained by eminent domain, while promising very minor municipal oversight, which is pretty important, giving them a lot of leeway to develop this project. And to clarify, MetLife would have to 
pay for the properties. In fact, they would spend a while acquiring properties. But the city was handing over all the valuable real estate that was embedded in the roads, in the streets, mm-hmm. and in the sidewalks. All of that. Think about all those streets, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th Street. All of those streets and those blocks and the sidewalks, the MetLife wasn't paying for that land. The city no. was simply giving it to them. And it is on this property then that MetLife would develop these two housing developments here. Stuyvesant Town would would require the clearance of 18 blocks between 14th Street and 20th Street. What's amazing is like it obliterates history. Not only are there no buildings that date back from before this development, but there are no roads even. Wiped away. And that wasn't even the area where those gas tanks were. The gas tanks were actually between 20th and 23rd Street. So, of course, that land would be cleared away for MetLife's second housing development, Peter Cooper Village. And just a quick question to clarify the difference between Stytown and Peter Cooper Village, aside from the fact that Stytown's bigger... The apartments themselves were also planned to be a a little bit different as well. Yeah, they were a little bit nicer on the Peter Cooper Village side, but then more important... They had a second bathroom. Yes. Slightly larger rooms. It's a big deal. That's a big deal. But more importantly, the Peter Cooper Village side was wholly privately developed. The Stytown part fell in line with the public-private collaboration. Ah, And which is why we'll spend most of the rest of our show here just talking about Stuyvesant Town. Now, Stytown could house 24,000 people in 8,755 apartments in 35 incredibly similar-looking buildings that were 13 stories tall. Now, by eliminating that grid plan, you could, if you lived there, you could allow yourself to forget that you even lived in New York City. The apartments would form... What could only be called a walled fortress around the property on all four sides. So if you look at this property as a whole, Mm -hmm. most of those facing those outer streets are apartment buildings. So it creates a major wall around the property with only two entrances to get into Stytown from either side. Well, the scale is just so different. You know, the... Mm -hmm. That scale itself makes it seem like a fortress. That fortress quality was actually a selling point. It was one of the ways they were selling Stytown because it meant greater security. It also, though, sealed itself off from many amenities, right? So a normal neighborhood might have things like a post office. Mm. So so Stuyvesant Town doesn't have a post office. And why is that? Well, the reason isn't, of course, to make life inconvenient for those who lived here, but rather to make sure that people who did not live in Stuytown, it would prevent them from coming in because there would be no need. Ah, so very intentionally then... People who live outside Stytown have no reason to go into Stytown. <laughs> and that is a specific design quirk of, of the building. Now, it's a feature, not a bug. Yes. That would explain why there's not a school inside Stytown, even though there are plenty of children, yeah. obviously, to merit a school. No, because if it was a public school, other neighborhood children from outside Stytown would have to come in. This is where it starts getting complicated. Oh, it's about to get much more complicated than this. By the way, um, this past week, I went to the New York Public Library and checked out the official Stytown brochure. Like when you moved in. A sales brochure? Yes, sales brochure. That was absolutely amazing. And I will have most of it up on the blog, actually. Pictures really, you say a thousand words here. But to quote from the brochure, um, there was an entire 
Page on the security force, quote, The protection of the patrol division is an extra dividend you get with your home in Stytown. Your patrolmen serve you night and day. You see them during the day, regulating traffic and parking on the streets and drives and watching over the safety of your children at play. At night, while you sleep, they are patrolling the grounds, climbing the stairways, watching the halls, the elevators, and checking the roof of your home. Ooh. And, and this is a private security force. Yes. Not These are not New no. York City policemen. No, not at all. This was a project partially funded by New York taxpayer dollars, despite the fact that the public streets were completely eliminated and that the land was essentially put into the custodianship of a private security force. But I can't imagine that this just went over well with everybody. Certainly some people would be inspired to protest. Well, as soon as people heard about this, which is a key point, there was lots of criticism. Housing advocacy groups criticized the design and the density of the project. Other groups obviously declared it unconstitutional for the city to take land by eminent domain and to give it to a private operator. But in typical Robert Moses fashion... Everything was pretty much pushed through behind closed doors. I mean, a lot of the planning took place before anyone even knew about it, before the community even got wind of it. That was his way. That was his way. But honestly, for other New Yorkers, this sounded actually like a pretty glorious idea because you might be able to live there yourself. New middle-class housing. Yeah, I mean, it sure beats shacking up with my family when I could go off and have this brand new apartment with modern conveniences like elevators yeah. and hot water. and. But this promise, for some New Yorkers, was an illusion. On May 19th, 1943, there was a hearing at City Hall, the City Planning Commission. The MetLife president, Frederick Ecker, was there at the Planning Commission. After the meeting was over, Ecker was approached in the hallway by a reporter from the New York Post named Naomi Joles, who asked Ecker about whether Stuyvesant Town would be open to white and black New Yorkers. Eckers responded, quote, Negroes and whites don't mix. Perhaps they will in a hundred years, but not now. If we brought them into this development, it would be to the detriment of the city, too, because it would depress all the surrounding property, unquote. And that is so shocking to us today. Yeah, it's like a brazen statement. Just over 75 years later. But I have a feeling that his point of view was all too common at the time. Well, we can say that, as we might say today, he said the quiet part loud. Uh, because, in fact, New York had long been a bastion of discrimination against African Americans in housing, but, of course, in the public square, and held fast onto this undercurrent of racism here into the 1940s that has become known as the Jim Crow North. During the early and mid-20th century, hundreds of thousands of African Americans moved to New York to escape the blatant racist laws and culture of the Jim Crow South. But once they got here, they would sometimes find equally onerous racial barriers here in New York. In all realms of life, and even in places you think would be accepting or would be a little bit more open to diversity during this period. Such as what? Well, for instance, hotels. So the, the famous Hotel Teresa 
in Harlem, okay? It was really the center of the Harlem Renaissance and a huge landmark of the 20th century in Harlem. This was a whites-only accommodation until 1940, okay? Our story, we're at 1943, so it's around the same period. Nightclubs. Cafe Society in the, the West Village was built as the first integrated nightclub when it opened in 1938, 1938, about the same time that those new public housing projects were opening by the New York City Housing Authority. Um, I mentioned the Harlem River Houses and the Williamsburg Houses. And those, by the way, were also racially segregated. The Harlem River Houses were open only to black residents and the yeah. Williamsburg only to white. And those were public projects. Yeah, and, and were inadequate because finding good housing in New York was already a struggle. But it was a real struggle for African-Americans because private property owners could bar black residents themselves. There were really few laws, at least during the 1920s and 30s, that barred them from discriminating. So then black New Yorkers would have to cram into places that were that were friendly to African-Americans, like Harlem, like Bed-Stuy. Where rents would usually be higher. Where rents would be higher, and you'd have these segregated housing projects as well. So back to Ecker the statement that he made in the hallway to this New York Post reporter in 1943, Ecker now essentially claimed to the public that if you were a black resident of New York City, you could not live in this new middle-class housing development, that your tax dollars were subsidizing a middle-class housing development that you could not live in because the color of your skin would, quote, depress all the surrounding property. So, Ecker says that out loud here in mm-hmm. 1943 at City Hall. And the next day, the City Planning Commission votes on the plan to build Stytown with MetLife. And approved it. Yeah, the following day. And then the formal contract would be signed in a ceremony at City Hall in August of 1943. 1943, while the U.S. is deeply engaged in World War yes. II. So- This would, of course, even delay the construction of the project a little bit, but would add a new urgency for something that you mentioned earlier, the idea of creating housing for those who would return from the war. Stytown, then, would become, at the outset, largely available to veterans and their family. Providing, of course, that the veterans were white. Yes. Now, MetLife would make what I would describe charitably as a clumsy attempt to assuage the situation. There was already some outcry, as you can imagine, by announcing in 1944 that they would build another housing development up in Harlem called the Riverton Houses. And these would be open to black residents. So a kind of separate but equal solution. As the author Charles Abrams wrote in The Nation, quote, There would now be one project for whites and one project for Negroes on the Southern pattern. Subsidized segregation is to be the new pattern for urban development. And in his book, Stuyvesant Town, USA, which came out in the early 70s, the author Arthur Simon wrote, quote, Before a brick was laid or a single application taken, the vision that conceived the forerunner of urban renewal was clear. It would be a park-life town sealed off from its surroundings, an all-white suburb within the city. So you've kind of painted us into a bleak corner here, Greg. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, many of the first residents of Stytown and Peter Cooper Village would see this injustice and do something about it. 
the building of Stuyvesant Town continues after this break. Hey, listener, we're foregoing the normal ad that might typically be here to announce some wonderful new additions and changes that we are making that will benefit our supporters on Patreon. Yeah, we're kind of shaking things up. We've been on Patreon for a number of years, and we are really fortunate to have more, at this point, more than 800 of you joining us with small monthly donations that really help keep this show running. And to you, our patrons, we say thank you because we wouldn't be able to make this show without you. We remain an independent podcast with an incredibly small team. And, you know, given the local aspect of our show, we don't really fit in with a collection of sleeker national shows, though. So we're we're forging out on our own here. And are you saying we're niche? Oh, a nice niche. Perhaps. It's a very (laughs) nice niche. But because of that, we really do rely on Patreon as a way to keep the show up and running, to keep the lights on, as they say. So if you look at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, you might notice a couple different changes. We have a few new thank you gifts, including a new mug that we're very excited about, and also a sticker that you can, you know, that you can stick anywhere you like. All those who support us on Patreon will receive... The Bowery Boys Movie Club, which we got a little sampling of last episode, if you hadn't heard it, which is our discussion and celebration of New York City in the movies. But we're about to launch a brand new segment for those who support us at the $5 level and above. Right now, we're calling this new podcast, new extra podcast, and another thing. Although, we need to come up with a more New York-y name. I don't want to say yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Well, for now, it's called and another thing. And what we'll be doing is taking one element of the story that was perhaps a little adjacent, maybe would normally make the cutting room floor, and we're going to carve that and turn that into a new show. And in addition, also kind of like riff a little bit on how we put together the show. Yeah, and perhaps you'll find it interesting in that it won't really be edited and we won't really have notes. So it will be recorded right at the end of recording our session. We'll kind of see how the main show goes and then we're going to let loose, kind of let our hair down a little (laughs) with And Another Thing. So we hope that you'll join us. That's for everybody at the $5 level and that will be starting with this episode. And of course, those who already support us on Patreon will receive all of those from day one. Just check your Patreon page to see which particular levels apply to some of those benefits. So join the fun. What are you waiting for? Head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. And thank you so much. And now back to the show. So, Tom, I am someone looking for affordable housing in New York here in the mid late 1940s. What is the application process here for such a massive project? That had also generated a lot of publicity, not all of it good, but people were aware of this huge new middle-class development going up and it would prove to be very popular or very competitive to get into. Now, as you mentioned, veterans uh, had priority But MetLife also, aside from the fact that they were restricting applicants to really only white applicants, they also wanted certain types of people to be tenants here. They wanted, quote unquote, respectable types. You know, they were looking to see what professions people had. But most intriguingly, 
and perhaps most invasively, they would also send an inspector to visit your current house or apartment in order to see how well you kept house. They would literally come and do a housekeeping check. <laughs> like I'm, I'm envisioning a white gloved finger. Yeah, you know, <laughs> checking for dust because they wanted only people who would uphold, you know, the standards of the management company and MetLife and kept up proper appearances. But because of the rent controlled pricing for these new modern apartments, they would receive more than a hundred and ten thousand applications for less than nine thousand apartments in the first year that they were open. Why was this so popular given the fact that there is already a lot of bad press about this development, even on the front pages of newspapers? Well, can we talk about the press for a second? Uh, yes, because uh -huh. as we were looking through stories about this, was there really a lot, a lot of bad press? Like the New York Times hardly even seemed to write initially about the race issue at all. This is a really good point because now that you say it, because I did some of my research at the Schoenberg Center mm -hmm. up in Harlem on a microfiche machine, which was very exciting. Um, you love that. <laughs> you totally love microfiche. But it was a scrapbook of various newspapers. And you are right that most of the more explicit articles were from African-American newspapers, mm -hmm. the Amsterdam News, for instance, from workers' newspapers, communist newspapers. Mm -hmm. So people who were actively being discriminated against yes. or, or total lefties. Yes, <laughs> were, essentially, yeah. Were upset about this, but many mainstream middle-class New Yorkers, it probably wasn't a huge story for them. Mm -hmm. But to your question, why... Was this so popular? I mean, there was a huge housing shortage in the city. And this was a huge development of comfortable and modern apartments. Rooms were of a decent size. They were well-constructed. And the rents were controlled. They were pretty affordable for the middle class. When Stytown opened in 1947, the rents were set at $14 per room. Okay? making the apartments, you know, around 50 to $90 a month, depending on the size. $50, <laughs> which is about $532 today, up to about $969 today. It was truly affordable middle-class housing. So almost a third of what people pay today, a similar kind of housing, or even a fourth, depending on where you're... This is, <laughs> maybe this is my off-topic thing for and another thing, but <laughs> I was looking at Airbnb, mm -hmm. and it's like people rent out their apartments on Stytown for $230 a night, okay? Oh, wow. So times have changed. So these attracted a lot of interest, and even though a lot of people who would become those first tenants would be very much against the racial segregation of the management company... They, you know, they could be against segregation and still become tenants of this new place. Just because you lived here didn't mean you signed on yeah. to management's policies. The, and even some people who were very opposed to it thought that they could move in to Stytown and be kind of part of the resistance, you know, and do something about it. Mm -hmm. As for the design, by the way, just architecturally speaking, and then we're going to move on. This was designed by architects Richmond Shreve, Erwin Clavin, and Andrew Eakin. These 35 red brick buildings. They were, of course, 
roundly criticized because they were very utilitarian. They were very monolithic. Mm-hmm. There were almost zero decorative flourishes to these buildings, although many similar buildings of this very same type were being built all around the city. Yeah. The author Charles Bagley, in his book on Stuyvesant Town called Other People's Money, wrote, quote, Ecker was not interested in flamboyant architecture. His architects designed buildings less for their aesthetic qualities than for practical economies. The buildings were more than twice the height of most tenements on the nearby Lower East Side, but the height allowed for more apartments and a greater rent stream to share the cost of creating the complex. The unrelenting uniformity of the buildings allowed construction to proceed swiftly and economically. So part of the decision to go with this design, this style of building, was that they could be built quickly and economically. And the the first buildings were completed in 1947 and ready to be moved into. And that same year, MetLife was back in court for the racial policy. Right, because three veterans... African-American veterans were suing MetLife saying that their discriminatory tenant selection process was actually violating their constitutional rights to equal access. That case was joined by the ACLU, the NAACP, and even by, you know, luminaries such as Thurgood Marshall. These three men were Joseph Dorsey, who was a former army captain and a social worker, along with Calvin Harper and Monroe Dowling. What was the gist of their argument, essentially? I believe that they were, in essence, taking issue with the very nature of this public-private partnership. They were saying, by its very nature, you know, the, the city had been so involved in this. They had given things to MetLife, like this land, sort of subsidized this development, They were thus conveying a, quote, public purpose to the development itself. And if it's a public purpose that needed to be served, the fact that they were being discriminated against because of their race, it actually violated state and federal housing laws. MetLife, they argued actually that Stytown was a private development and that they were just acting in by selecting their own tenants in their own best interests Um, because they had to think about the economics of the whole project. And the courts would side with MetLife, and they would state that essentially just because it was serving, this project was serving the public, it didn't mean that it was a public project. This would go all the way up to the state Supreme Court in 1949. But even though MetLife was initially victorious in this lawsuit, this doesn't necessarily mean that the tenants... The newly arrived tenants of Stytown didn't mean that they were happy with this. No, and in fact, many of them started organizing that same year that it opened in 1947. There was a group of veterans who lived at Stytown who formed something called the Town and Village. That's Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. That's sort of shorthand. The Town and Village Tenants Committee to End Discrimination at Stuyvesant Town. And through this committee, they would they would build support and build pressure to get rid of segregation in these developments. They'd publish articles uh, in the newspapers. They'd, they'd put out pamphlets. They'd hold rallies and events. And in 1949, one of these committee members, a Stytown resident named Jesse Kessler, he allowed a friend of his, an African-American man named Hardeen Hendricks, with his wife, Ray, and their son, Hardeen Jr., to stay in Kessler's Stytown apartment while Kessler headed out of town 
on vacation. To simply stay at the apartment. To stay there. The only problem, of course, is that Hendricks and his family were African-American, and it became a big deal. The event was covered by the press, celebrated actually by many tenants, of course, who were supportive of racially integrating these developments. And this committee actually held a, a rally in support of this family. But it was also very closely followed by Stytown's management in MetLife. Now, Kessler returned from vacation, and the Hendricks family needed a new place to go. So they were offered the apartment of another committee member, a man named Lee Lorch and his family. Lorch was the vice president of that, of that committee. Lorch had been a math professor at CUNY. He wasn't sure why, but he hadn't been granted tenure. There was speculation that maybe it's because of his involvement with this committee. And he had taken another, another position teaching math at Penn State. So the Hendrixes would move into Lorch's apartment. Unfortunately for Lorch, the next year, Penn State would not renew his contract. And they even told him that it was due to the fact that he'd been helping out with the Hendricks family. This is unbelievable, quite honestly, that people were losing their jobs over mm -hmm. this now. But these activists, as well as the Hendricks, continued to live here? Well, for the time being, until MetLife issued eviction notices to 35 of these families who were activists and, and members of this committee. And they gave them until January 17th, 1952, to leave their apartments. But more than half of them stayed put. In fact, they locked themselves into their apartment on that day, January 17th, 1952. Tenants at Stytown and Peter Cooper Village rallied to their defenses. They sent in food to them. They even famously lifted a large weather balloon up into the air, a protest weather balloon, <laughs> attached to which was this streamer that read, Stop the Evictions. There were rallies, there, were, there was picketing, there was a, a vigil outside MetLife's offices. This was actually covered in very small articles in the New York Times about, you know, about protests in the street. It certainly wasn't mentioned in this brochure that I, that I found <laughs> at the New York Public Library. This is not the image that they wanted to convey. The Times buried it at the bottom of page 11 on January 16th. Eviction plan protested the proposed eviction from Stuyvesant Town of 19 tenants by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company operator of the project was protested yesterday by 60 pickets who marched for two hours on the east side of City Hall Park. So somehow it just, they, they make it sound kind of small. <laughs> Which is not the case. Finally, a deal was reached between MetLife and the tenants. They agreed to let everybody stay as long as three of the tenants, including this Dr. Lorch, who had been fired from his job, would volunteer to leave. So the, the leaders of the resistance movement, still three of them got forced out, uh, but everybody else got to stay. And later that year, in 1952, MetLife started issuing leases to African-American families in Stuyvesant Town. Now, by design in this show, we have talked very specifically about the origin of Stuytown here and the troubles relating to it. But there is, of course quite naturally, a different or at least a separate quieter story about the daily life 
that would develop here at Stuyvesant Town starting in the late 40s and then to the 1950s. To the residents, these brand new residents of Stuytown, this was actually a very successful experiment in bringing suburban living into an urban area. It's as close to the embodiment of the 1950s nuclear family ideals that you could possibly even find in Manhattan. 50s living like dad off at the office and June Cleaver making dinner. <laughs> yes. Well, Stuyvesant Town actually marketed itself as a haven for young families. And many servicemen and women would start families here at Stuytown. During the baby boom. <laughs> yes, they are part of the boom. All the literature that I read from Stuytown kept describing this as wholesome living. Hmm. Wholesome. To again quote from the brochure, with the under a spread, children are happy in Stuyvesant Town. Quote, Boys and girls were much in the hearts and minds of those who planned and built her home in Stuyvesant Town. There are miles of protected walks where young Johnny may ride his tricycle, and little Susan can take her doll for an airing. <laughs> an airing? What happened to the doll? <laughs> I would like to get some fresh to air. To get some fresh air, as, as dolls often need. Well, by 1950, okay. one-fifth of the residents were under the age of five. <laughs> there were so many newborns and so many baby carriages and strollers around that oval that it was given the somewhat derisive nickname, Rabbit Town. Rabbit Town. So lots of little bunnies. Lots of little bunnies. And were the fathers, then I take it, many of the fathers off at work and the mothers at home with the children? Yeah, so this is an interesting quirk of life at Stuytown here. In reality, in New York City in general, women did enter the workplace in large numbers. However, here in Stuyvesant Town, there were actually fewer women who had jobs. They were stay-at-home moms. They were homemakers because the structure of Stuyvesant Town itself conformed to a suburban model of living. So right then, so pretty suburban, but still here in the city. But did it have the diversity of the city now that they had officially desegregated? I would actually say no. Most of the residents were of either Irish or Eastern European Jewish descent. A 1960 census of Stuytown indicated that of the 22,405 residents, only 47 of them were black. After all, after- I'm sorry, say that one more time. Out of 22,000 residents? Yes, 47 were African-American. After all the rallies had died away, most African-Americans preferred not to live within this literal emblem of housing discrimination. And of course, there are other external factors that are keeping black families from acquiring these types of housing opportunities. I should add also to that number that 16 of the residents were Puerto Rican. Between 1940 and 1960, New York was home to hundreds of thousands of new residents newly arrived from Puerto Rico. These new populations that transformed and re-energized the culture of many New York tenement neighborhoods, including that tenement neighborhood just to the south of Stuytown. The Lower East Side, or since we're in the 1960s, yeah. I guess that's when they started calling this particular segment south of Stuytown the East Village. Yes. <laughs> and those who arrived, those those Puerto Rican residents who moved into the East Village here, of course, 
notice a striking difference between their housing and that walled fortress on 14th Street. Some even begin calling 14th Street the barrier. Residents very rarely use the southern exit except to get to that 14th Street subway, which is at 14th and 1st. Meanwhile, kids from the neighborhood were prohibited from playing in the playgrounds of Stuyvesant Town. Again, this built as this public-private coalition. But you're describing the situation in the 1960s Mm -hmm. here, the the same decade that saw great advancements in civil rights. And greater pressure on MetLife, who hadn't necessarily cleared matters up let's just say, Um, they received continued pressure from organizations like the NAACP to open that application process even wider to non-white people here and also at Parkchester in the Bronx. In 1968, New York City's Human Rights Commission charged the company with, quote, deliberate, intentional, and systemic exclusion of non-white residents. Then, that's 1968, that same year, On the federal level, the Fair Housing Act was passed as part of the Civil Rights Act, which barred anybody from refusing to sell or rent dwellings based on race and religion. Which obviously isn't to say that housing discrimination then just simply disappeared. That just fixed everything. No, it didn't at all. I mean, housing discrimination still exists to this day. Now, residents of Stytown would have a different struggle to take on, and that would be to keep the rental prices of their homes down. They would enter into a battle of decades with MetLife here. Oh, because the original rent protections only lasted 25 years as that first law was negotiated. And Yeah, and MetLife threatened that rents would obviously go up if they lost it. Well, in 1974, they got a 10-year extension that was granted to MetLife, and that abatement was slowly phased out, and the rental cost of the apartments would then be governed by New York's new rent stabilization laws. Hmm. Stuyvesant Town thankfully leaves the headlines for a while. MetLife's reputation as a landlord actually gets better, um, and even during the 1980s, the neighborhood is celebrated as one of New York City's safest. A 1984 New York Times article even considers Stytown, quote, an oasis. Although, we should say, no longer a haven for families as it had been in the 1950s, but was now, at this time by the 80s, maintaining a quarter of, of residents who are over 65 years of age, and even a lot of single and unmarried residents. Not good news for the old playgrounds. <laughs> for for Susan's little dolly on her airing. <laughs> now let's flash forward to 2006. Okay, so... F- okay, so we're really jumping ahead. Yes. America is in the throes of this heady housing speculation bubble. Mm-hmm. MetLife finally decides that they want to get out of the Town Peter Cooper Village biz, and they decide to sell it to a powerful real estate firms, Tishman Spire and BlackRock. This the, is at the height of the bubble. The absolute, the, the, the fullest, roundest part of the bubble. This is certain to spell doom, obviously, for the longtime residents who have fought vigorously against the sale. They buy it from MetLife for the outlandish sum of $5.4 billion. Then, unfortunately, in 2008, the American housing market crumbled. And one of the biggest victims was Tishman Spire here, who defaulted on the mortgage, reverting the entire property to the creditors. 
5.4 billion in 2006. At the depths of the Great Recession, the properties were only valued at 1.9 billion. So you can see the problem here. The math doesn't work. <laughs> billion. Now, we would like to actually direct you for more information on this because it's not really what we're dwelling on in this show. It's is to go check out the book Other People's Money. It's one of the best books written about recent New York City history in the past decade by Charles V. Bagley. But to quote the author Richard Pluns, quote, the sheer scale of the Stuyvesant Town debacle was for a period etched in the public psyche. And then, as the market resumed, it was forgotten. Obviously, anybody who's been apartment hunting can identify with that. <laughs> yes. We would like to give a huge shout out to Daniel Gorodnik, who was a representative on the city council for the Stuyvesant community and played a major role in 2015 when Blackstone bought the development for $5.3 billion. Gorodnik helped to negotiate the largest affordable housing preservation deal in New York City history at this time. To quote the New York Times in 2015, the sale to the Blackstone Group, a Wall Street investment firm and one of the country's largest landlords, includes an unusual regulatory agreement with the administration of Mayor Bill de Blasio that would ensure that a block of 5,000 apartments would be affordable for the next 20 years for families of teachers, construction workers, firefighters, and others who have traditionally made their home at Stuyvesant Town. And yet I must say, when we walked through the neighborhood just last week, it can be actually kind of a breath of fresh air. Back when I lived on the Lower East Side and worked up in Midtown, I would purposely walk home between Stuyvesant Town because it's, a, it's almost like a little Central Park, mm -hmm. right? That there is a, it's actually very quiet. It's beautifully landscaped in many areas and it's very peaceful. And generations of New Yorkers have chosen to live in Stuyvesant Town for those very reasons and because it does have a distinct community of residents who know each other and who, who live in a New York that the rest of us don't live in. Yes. Now, in our new Patreon segment and another thing, we're going to get a little bit deeper into the story and take on a, on a couple additional tangents. I'm going to talk about uh, some of the, the reactions in the press to the architecture of Stuytown back when it opened, uh, specifically in 1948, because some of the reactions, some of the critiques were were scathing, and some were also quite complimentary. What are, <laughs> what are you going to be talking about? Well, I'm going to take us back to 1968 and that fair housing law, which empowered the federal government to crack down on housing discrimination throughout the country. And in particular, in the early 1970s, they would set their sights on two major New York City developers, one by the name of LaFrac and the other of Trump. You can get that by joining us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com for images and even some videos related to this show. And I will include many of the images I took from that original Stytown propaganda brochure. Great. <laughs> which, is, which is actually quite a beautiful work of art in its own way. We'd also like to dedicate this episode to the many, many residents of Stytown who have called it home and those who worked on the integration and the increased openness of Stuyvesant Town to all people. So thank you very much for listening. 
Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.